Hey, y'all, I wanted to take a second before we get into this episode to remind you that the show is also available on YouTube. And starting from episode number 101, it's all in 4K. I'm trying to make the best video podcast I can, so definitely check it out and subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. Go to youtube.com slash at progressionspod or hit the link in the show notes. If you're not getting enough progressions and you want to get even more thoughts on creativity, productivity, and growth in music, then you should sign up for my newsletter. You'll find a brief article in each monthly edition as well as updates on progressions and myself. I'm also sharing some workflow hacks and links to stuff that I found interesting or helpful. So it should be fun. If you want to stay up to date on the latest and get all the bonus stuff, go to travisferencecom slash subscribe or click the link in the show notes. Hey, welcome back to Progressions, Success in the Music Industry. Thanks for joining us for Episode 7. In our interview this week, we go deep on education, learning, and how those can work to unlock your career. So along those lines, I figured I'd do this open about my experiences and opinions with continued education. This will be a bit different than the usual opening, but we'll give it a shot. I mean, hey, it's a new show. We're trying new stuff. As I've mentioned in previous episodes, I had a period of time in my career where I wasn't actively seeking learning. At the time, in my opinion at least, I was killing it. My career was going exactly where I thought it should be going. So I got comfortable. I had several really great jobs, people knew what to call me for, and I was super confident in my abilities. The unfortunate result of this comfort was that I was just waiting for the next step to appear so that I could take it. I figured I was doing so well that it was only a matter of time before that happened. And so I kept doing what I was doing. And to my surprise, there were no phone calls for, quote, the next big thing, just more of what I was doing. While I was cruising through this comfortable and safe chunk of my career, I wasn't growing. I was really good at the things I was good at, but I wasn't being put in situations where I'd learn new stuff, like I had been when I started out in studios and I was working with different people in different studios all the time. There was always something to learn. You just absorbed it all. I still hadn't grasped the idea that my lack of growth was what was holding me back. It wasn't until I started branching out and doing more side work that I started seeing there was a lot of stuff I was missing. Now, I had something a lot of people wanted, a steady job in audio, but they had what I wanted, freedom to do whatever, work for themselves, control their careers, and grow in the directions that they wanted to grow. I do want to say that I don't regret any of the jobs that I had before I became fully independent, I gained a lot from all of those jobs. I was the one that got complacent and didn't push myself. So as I started getting excited again, learning new things and pushing myself, I decided I had to stop working these jobs, as good as they were. The appeal of growth and the opportunity to do anything I wanted was just too great to ignore. This was probably a little over three or four years ago. And since then, I've re-engaged all of my learning muscles. If I have an interest in something, I dive in and figure it out catalog where it fits into my workflow or my life, and then apply the bits that work best. And the best part about all of this is as you return to the habit of self-teaching, you really boost your own confidence that you can do anything that you set your mind to. It's kind of like checking things off your to-do list or putting X on the calendar for every workout. You get to the point where the act of it is energizing and it gets you excited to continue doing it. So I guess the point of this rant is to encourage you to either never stop learning and growing or to return to it if it's faded away from you. It's going to leave you way more fulfilled and excited about whatever you're doing. 
And in today's internet age, there is absolutely no excuse for not taking advantage of the plethora of free information, classes, tutorials, keynote speeches, or whatever. It's all out there. In closing, go learn some more stuff. Get smarter. You never know where you'll end up if you're open to it. This would be the perfect spot for that more you know rainbow shooting star thing from that ad in the 90s. We need to bring that thing back. When I first met today's guest at the AES convention probably 10 years ago, she was an emerging electronic artist representing Ableton. Since then, she's added so many titles to her career portfolio that I can only hope to touch on all of them today. Our guest is songwriter, producer, multi-instrumentalist, music and tech educator, entrepreneur, and activist, Aaron Barra. Currently, Aaron is the director of popular music at Arizona State University. Prior to that, she was an associate professor at Berklee College of Music and is also responsible for some of Berklee Online's most popular courses to date. And on top of all that, and making music, she is the executive director of Beats by Girls, an organization she founded to empower and encourage women, girls, and gender expansion people to have careers in music production and technology. So welcome to the show, Aaron Barra. Hey, Aaron, how's it going today? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me today. I'm excited. Yeah, thanks for, for joining us. How is it where you are? You're, you're in Arizona now. I live in Phoenix or right outside of Phoenix. I mean, it's good. It's a kind of a weird time to move and, and have a new job. But true. Uh, let's Very just say there's, there's a lot of reasons to stay inside in Phoenix right now. It's, it's hot. <laughs> and there's a, I don't know if you know, but there's a pandemic happening. So it, it is true. It is happening. Um, so I've been excited to have you on because you've done a lot of things. You've actually, you've done so much stuff. I don't really know where to start. I'll be honest. But I do want to start... Um, I listened to, I was doing my research, listened to an NPR interview that you did, I don't know, a couple weeks ago, maybe. And you mentioned that you focus on creating lifelong learners out of your students. And I wanted to, A, commend you for realizing and identifying that as an integral part of a student's tool set and making sure that they're equipped with that. So I applaud you on that. that that's amazing. Um, and I don't feel like that was encouraged when we were in school. We were in college around the same time, at the same time. Is that part of the reason that you focus on that, that, you, that you've made so many shifts in your life? Yeah, I mean, you know, and I went back to Berkeley after to, to teach. So I kind of had like two experiences there, which, you know, everything about what this program is, is in some ways a, a reaction to either what happens to me after I graduated from there or because of the things I experienced the second time around. It's, you know, although people are like, there's some just amazing work being done at institutions all over the, you know, all over the map here that maybe it's not being done exactly the right way quite yet. And this is my attempt to, you know, make up a tone for the sins <laughs> of, of <laughs> higher education in the past. I totally agree. I Now I, I should clarify that I'm not knocking on on our or my education at all. I thought it was I thought it was great, but it wasn't until I was older and I looked back that I realized that once I started learning things again on my own, that it was inspiring and creative, both like musically, but then also just to do other things in my life as well. Just learning, learning when you realize it's important is refreshing. Yeah, I mean, that's what keeps me going. And that's part of the fun is that when you're doing something new or you're expanding your skill set, you're learning while you do that. And, you know, that's what keeps it fun. Otherwise, you know, if I think back about when I was purely focused as an artist, thinking about like playing songs all the time, 
I think I'd get really bored doing that now, now that I've kind of done so many other things and like that, that, the task of trying something new and learning it and absorbing it and then moving on to the next, like that excites me. Oh, I agree completely. 100%. I guess we should run through your, your career a little bit in like tag moments. Uh, but was there something when you were doing the artist thing, what encouraged you to spread that knowledge? Like at some point you started leaning towards education type stuff. What, was there anything that triggered that? I mean, that was totally an accident. <laughs> and, and even today, I, I'm like, should I really be doing this? Um, no, I, it, it just totally was something that I stumbled into because, you know, I had sort of embraced digital technologies as a, as an artist and a songwriter. And I guess if I had to like choose an identity, I would identify as like an electronic singer songwriter in a sense. So when I did that at the time, there just wasn't a lot of people who looked like me or felt like me that were doing that kind of stuff, especially in that sort of capacity. So, you know, being an artist is a lifestyle choice and it's basically you're choosing to be hungry. And I was quite hungry at the time. And a lot of other people wanted to do what I was doing or they were intrigued by what that was and how I was doing it. And so it started off with just private clients, you know, people saying like, can you show me how to use live or can you help me build my live set? And that just sort of snowballed, you know, it was like one artist and then the next artist and then the next artist and then some small group classes. And, you know, it just, it's something I happened to be really good at, but I never intentionally, you know, said, and then I'll be a professor. Like that was never, ever, ever the plan. <laughs> Then did did Berkeley Online initially come to you and say, hey, we've seen you doing these things? Because that was your first foray into education, right? Yeah, so I did. It was kind of simultaneous. Berkeley Online and Berkeley reached out to me at the same time. It was very serendipitous, I guess. You know, at the time, right before I was offered the position there, I I had been up there because I was, I was working for Ableton as a product specialist. And you know, they had just come out with this new instrument called Push. This was the first Push. So this was like 2013 or 2012, maybe. And um, I was up there doing demos for the EPD department, There's, which is formerly music synthesis for all of my early 2000s Berkeley people. <laughs> um, so, you know, I was just traveling around to different expos and universities demoing the new technology and kind of, you know, half sales, half education. And, um, you know, while I was there, this guy was like, Hey, I don't know if you know, but the new chair of the songwriting department, because I was a songwriting major, you know, she's also a producer and you should go chat with her. I think that you guys would get along. And, uh, so the next, I was around for an extra day and she was brand new and had a lot of time on her hands. And so, you know, I, I walked over to her office, sat down and we kind of chopped it up for a minute. And she jokingly offered me a job right then and there. She was like, <laughs> Oh, I could really use somebody like you with your skill set. You know, like, are you looking for a job? Do you want to work here? And I, I, you know, I laughed it off at the time and went back to New York and was kind of doing my thing. And then about six months later, she called me and said, do you actually want a job? <laughs> like I could, I, I really needed, she needed somebody with my skill set, 
And so, you know, next thing I know, I was commuting back and forth between Brooklyn and Boston. And I did that for about two and a half years and then decided to kind of like take the full plunge and permanently move up to Boston. But on the on the online side, there was um, I have a course called Intro to Ableton Live on Coursera, which is like a really it's a very popular platform for higher education institutions to provide these like micro courses. Right. And they. Ableton or Berkeley wanted to do an Ableton course. And so they had asked the dudes at Ableton, you know, who would they recommend to be the person teaching the course? And they had recommended me. So it like, it happened at the exact same time. It was totally nuts from completely different, you know, places. And then next thing I know, I live in Boston and back at Berkeley, it was, it was a strange turn of events. Let's just put it that way. thrown straight into the fire of uh, of education. But so while you're doing this, I just to make sure I have my time frames together, you're also starting your organization Beats by Girls at the same time. Yeah, about a year before that. Yeah. So a lot of this stuff kind of happened all at the same time. It's it's kind of nuts. <laughs> can can we talk about Beats by Girls? What what was the inspiration to like to launch that? I think that it was twofold. On on one side, you know, like I had said, I people were just asking me to play this role of teacher in a sense. And it was, you know, nine out of 10 of my clients were women. And it wasn't like I was going out of my way to do that. And it be, just at one point, it became apparently clear to me that people were way more interested in how I was making music than music that I was making. That was a really tough pill to swallow. I'm not going to lie. It was it was difficult and sort of, it took me a few years to let go of that identity. But, you know, I, I felt like I had sort of plateaued as an artist and things weren't getting any better, especially financially or just in terms of like my quality of life. So almost, almost just out of anger, I was like, okay, well, you know, if this is, if this is how people view me and this is where I'm going to be getting the type of response that I want, then how about I just do a complete 180 and fully step into that role and say, okay, ladies, like this is how you do it. And uh, that, yeah, I mean, that's part of it was just frustration, you know, with the fact that things were happening over here and they weren't happening over there. And I, you know, I decided to, to make that shift, you know, on the other side, it just being a, someone who looks like me and feels like me in an industry that's predominantly, you know, run by white cis males is, it's exhausting. It's, it's really, really exhausting because I've had to work twice as hard. Sometimes feels like three times as hard to kind of get half the amount of credibility (laughs) um, as, as my counterparts. And, you know, it just makes me, I wouldn't say it makes me angry, but it definitely, uh, there's a reaction in me that says I need to do something about that. Um, Not only to, you know, find community so that I can help myself, but you know, there's a real power in helping other people. So, you know, it's like the activist in me definitely was, was activated if you will. And then, (laughs) you know, there was also the artist in me just needed to survive. And so I, I, you know, took the feedback I was getting from the world and just said, okay. Yeah, no, I mean, I think everything you're doing, I think is super important because you're right. There is a massive gap in, you know, this industry that needs that needs to be addressed. Are there girls that have started off in Beats by Girls? It started 
uh, in Brooklyn, in New York? Are there girls that have come up and they're like making records and you love to get to see that and they're producing? Yeah. I mean, there's, we do programming kind of across the spectrum of ages. So, you know, some of these kids are still quite young. Um, and then other, you know, we do a lot of adult programming and even the teachers themselves, like there's this one, um, woman in Minnesota in particular who took some of the adult classes and then released like three EPs and one of them got really big on SoundCloud. And we have three of our teaching artists have just become Ableton certified trainers, which is this like very elite sort of group of individuals around the world. And yeah, we have, we have a lot of testimonials from people, you know, saying that, it, it just opened up their their perception of themselves and what they thought was possible, not even just from the music technology side. Um, but, you know, it's 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 interesting because I think what we're what we're doing is fighting for what I call technology justice um, in, in as much as that we see, you know, that technology is the future of all industries, not just ours. Um, but everybody's right. And the people who have access to that technology, who understand how it works, who are even just culturally, you know, predisposed to think that it's for them. Those are the powerful people in the world. Um, and you know, we're, we're trying to create parity in that sense so that women are on the side, uh, like, you know, that we're, we're, we're adding more people to that side to even out the weight distribution, if you will. Um, and that music is sort of just like the backdrop there, or the skeleton key that unlocks these doors internally and externally. So, you know, the question is a good one. It's like, are there, you know, has anybody, has any of our community members, you know, like done something of note, of note, let's say, but on one hand, like that's almost not the point, right? Like most of the point is to just, give people an idea or a chance to say like, this is for you. This is what's possible. Maybe they go into game design. Maybe they become engineers. Maybe they become, I don't know, stay at home moms that make music, like whatever, whatever the manifestation of that is, is, is a win for us. Well, I, I agree. I like, um, I, I know you said that phrase, skeleton key music is the skeleton key. And it, and I didn't get that when I read it. Um, when I was doing my research, but it just clicked for me. It, you're right. It's not about the success that comes from necessarily creating music, but you, you're you empowering someone to realize that they can get behind something, they can make a change, conquer a new skill, whether they ever make music again after they turn 25 or whatever it is, but they know, hey, when I put my head down, I'm going to learn this thing. So I'm going to learn this. I'm going to start this business. I'm going to do this website. So yeah, it is far deeper. You're you're teaching people to empower themselves and to have that energy, take that and focus it where they want to focus. Whether they have a number one hit is a side note. It's like that is kind of the key, the key takeaway. Totally. Yeah. So that's amazing. It's like I said, really important stuff that needs to be done. Coming from the, a little bit of a, a shift, coming from the creative side, do you feel like that influences the way that you teach? Do you still channel some of your artist creativity into how you convey things to people or how you build a course out? Definitely. I mean, because that's the way that I learned. I wasn't in a formal classroom setting learning technology. It was always just a reaction to some sort of necessity. You know, it's like, oh, well, I can't pay somebody to do that. So I guess I'll be doing that. <laughs> um, but but the goal was always like, 
to complete this record or to make the demo. You know, there was always a musical sort of finish line at the throughout the learning process for me. And I think that, you know, these things we call, you know, devices or hardware or software, like they're literally just tools. And, you know, as a composer, I was written, I was, I was taught that there were, you know, just tools at my disposal, whether that was harmony, melody, rhythms, lyrics. Uh, so, you know, when I started adding in these new tools, I just, I just started viewing them as that in the same sense where it's just another way to make music. And so when I'm developing a course or teaching, like that musical finish line is always the goal. And that maybe doesn't seem so, you know, extraordinary, if you will. But if you take a look at a lot of other specifically really technical programs, it's almost in a vacuum, right? Where music isn't the foundation that everything else is built upon. Like if you're learning about sound design, you know, it's maybe you're not composing at the same time or producing at the same time. And, you know, for me that like those two things go hand in hand. And so when I'm teaching, that's how I do it. And some people struggle because of that, but by and far people are ignited through that process. Like you just gave me another tool to do the thing that I love so much. You know, how exciting is that? And when you're talking about creating lifelong learners, I think that's really the key is to say, look how exciting this stuff is. Look at all these options that you have. Look at all these devices that are going to do your musical bidding, like go and be creative and get excited. And that, that creates that lifelong learning. And then that learning deepens as you kind of continue down that journey. And I, I get criticized for that approach because it's, I'm, I'm using air quotes for anybody that's not, uh, that's using their ears right now. It's low tech, quote, low tech teaching. Um, and, you know, that's the expectation. I think as me, as a woman, they're like, oh, you know, it's soft tech, it's low tech. And I mean, that's true to some degree, but it's intentional. And then the higher tech and the deeper tech comes later. And that's absolutely a reflection of the way that I think about these things, my experience with them. It's all, it's all kind of one in the same. No, it makes absolute sense. Did you, did you come to that realization like after teaching for a little while and you looked back and you're like, hey, you know what I'm really good at? I teach this way. It is, it is a thing. Or did you actively approach it that way from day one? I think it was after the Coursera course that I really connected the dots there. You know, I, I, I can't help but have the background that I have. And my experience up until that point was as a, as a writer, you know, and as an artist. And so it just made total sense to me that when I wrote the course that people would be making music and I, and I know it's like, we we're laughing, <laughs> but, um, you know, a lot of courses aren't like that. Or like, it'll be like a technique. Or if you, if you take a Linda course, or if you're looking at, you know, tutorial videos, there's not this sort of like linear approach to, okay, here's how you do this now, like make it into song form or make a track or something. And the response from the Coursera course was just overwhelming. Like it was, it was number four across disciplines on Coursera. So that means I'm oh, up wow. against Harvard Business and like any other higher education, you know, institution that's putting curriculum up on Coursera. That intro to Ableton course was number four. It was insane. And, um, you know, then I knew I knew I was doing something right that then like right then and there. So I still get people writing me random 
messages all the time saying like, you know, thank you so much for showing me how to use Ableton. Now I do this, this, and that. And it's just this like three week little course about how to sequence MIDI and record audio. It just, it was just developed. It was like delivered in a, in a package that empowered people. That's great. That's amazing. I feel like I'm, I feel like I need to take it now. <laughs> Go online. <laughs> Check it out. If you're enjoying this episode, then please consider pulling your phone out, tapping that share button and sending this to one person that you think would enjoy it. Obviously, it would be huge for me, but it could be even more game-changing for that person. You just never know what can inspire or help someone else out. I want to take a second to tell you about Secret Sonics, a podcast by Ben Wallach and Carl Bonner. Secret Sonics is one of my favorite shows, and it's now double amazing with the addition of Carl Bonner as a co-host. Ben and Carl have teamed up to discuss the real-world trials and triumphs of music production. They cover it all from mixing and studio tricks to branding and mindsets. If you're a fan of progressions, you'll be a fan of Secret Sonics. Check it out wherever you listen to podcasts or hit the link in the show notes. My, my favorite part about Ableton is that I don't understand it as much as I understand Pro Tools, so therefore I can only create. I can't like get all nerdy about it. I just like bang it out and I'm done, and then I move on to Pro Tools. I feel like if I conquered Ableton, I would be less creative. It's such a deep program that is is like so much of it doesn't make sense because it, it, I feel like it sort of functions on like an analytical and a creative side. Like there's a little something here for the left brain people and there's a little something here for the right brain people. So like totally. no, no matter how you approach it, like there's still parts of it that you'll just never really get. Um, yeah. And, you know, that's what I love about it, that it's like, in that same way where your hands, you can have like these happy accidents or these like moments of just chaos that end up being super musical. Like that happens to me a lot in live where it's not happening to me as much in Pro Tools and Logic. And I think it's that idea. It's like I understand it a little too much. It makes a little too much sense for me <laughs> to really like explore in that same sense. So you have experience teaching in classroom. You have experience developing an online course. And you've been doing that for years now. How do you see the way that people learn online versus in the classroom? Hmm, that's do you a think good that question. some people tap into learn like self learning online a lot? I mean, I've done, I've been teaching myself a lot of various things with like YouTube videos, and I'm starting to learn from you know interns or assistants that kids that are younger than than us, they're learning a lot of stuff on the internet. Yes, they are. <laughs> um, I am one of those people, you know, I, I had to teach myself all that tech stuff. And this was before, like, there was like a myriad tutorial content on the internet, right? Like right when I started trying to figure this stuff out was like right when YouTube tutorial content even became a thing. And it was just like weird dudes in their basement telling you inaccurate yeah. information. <laughs> Um, so I, I am one of those learners. I identify as that like millennial sort of like, I can do whatever. I'll just YouTube my way out of it. I'll YouTube it. Yeah. <laughs> you find that video of the guy that's like clicking around. He's like, you click here and then, you know, that didn't work. You know, you click here and I'm like, oh man, come on, just make another video. Once you figure it out, don't leave it. Oh, well, that's what it's the, that's the nuance right there. Yeah. Um, yeah. I like to so, say the spirit of the information is there. It just might not be correct. <laughs> But to answer exactly. your question, you know, I love the online teaching format. It's, it just works for people today. I think, you know, 
half of the battle is just meeting people where they're at, right? Whether that's geographically or emotionally or technically or creatively, like whatever it is, right? You have to be able to identify where they are and, and go there and, and then help them take those next steps. So, you know, I think online learning is, is the future. People have been saying that for a long time. It's like, I'm not saying anything new necessarily, but I believe it more now than I ever did. <laughs> and, uh, you know, a place like Berkeley or even a place like, place like a classroom, that's a barrier to entry, right? Whether it's a tuition or a geographical location, you know, but some people absolutely need to be learning in a classroom. I think it depends on what type of a learner you are. But, you know, as we as a culture evolve and adapt to the fact that information is limitless in a sense and access to people, especially today, we were having this conversation this time last year. It might be a different response here, but yeah, I, I just think it's great. And there's so many different types of people on the Internet. I, you know, <laughs> like just in my last cohort on April or for on Berkeley Online, I had a guy who was a. Uh, ice skating choreographer and he was there to learn how to like piece together like music and do remixes for like his long and short programs for his ice dancers and then oh, wow. there was somebody who was tuning in from Afghanistan you know like on the GI bill and there was you know uh, an artist in Miami a young woman who wants to make her own music like an Iranian artist living in Canada as a ref like it was just that is super exciting to me that you have that diversity of individual and different musical goals. So I'm like, I'm all about the online learning thing, really. Well, I think it's, I think it's interesting. And obviously I, I'm going to tie it in to see if you have an opinion about, you know, the state of the world and the pandemic right now. Do you think that this is going to be a moment for education where online is going to shine and some people will probably execute it poorly, but the people that will execute it properly will be an example? I hope so. Um, or do you think people will just push each other back into rooms and go back to the old old world? I think it depends. You know, if it's, let's say if you're a jazz upright bass player, like, you're definitely going to want to go back in a room with another person. <laughs> um, and I say that just because it's like, it's so funny trying to transmit, especially like low frequency stuff through speakers and miking of like, it's like some of that stuff, it's just never, it's never going to work on an online format. At least not with the technology that's currently available to us. But in other respects, I think that in some ways it will never be the same. You know, we're, we're already, for my program, you know, we're having conversations about letting people do their fourth year remote so that if they want to move to Los Angeles and start working and finish their degree remotely, that, you know, we would make that happen. And, you know, I think that that's only good in the long run that we provide people with options for how they want to live their lives and how they want to learn. And, you know, having a physical location that somebody comes to really limits those options. What about um, access to technology in that case, especially in like what are the, the communications trades or the audio engineering or like where access to hands-on equipment is fairly necessary to like really wrap your head around what's going on? I guess I would just challenge that assumption. Fair enough. <laughs> you know, I, I know that a lot of people do feel that way, especially if you come from like a analog, large format console kind of place. But I don't, 
I don't know if that's 100% true, especially at, at a certain level. Like if you're building foundational experiences or knowledge that a lot of this can be done virtually, digitally, um, remotely. I, I, I think that that's true. And since a colleague of mine, her name is Laura Eskaday, she uses this phrase a lot, like using technology to overcome limiting beliefs. So like one application of that would be using auto-tune live to, you know, overcome the thought that, you know, you believe you're not a great vocalist or something. And, you know, you can use the technology to overcome whatever the limits of that belief are. And or, you know, same thing with like SAT testing and stuff like we, we have the ability to, to do this stuff. And and now we're having to sort of rethink, like, how are we going to overcome these obstacles? Um, we believe that this has to happen this way, but it's not an option anymore. So how can we reimagine that? And I think in that same capacity is true of engineering to some degree. You know, do I have the answer to that? No, um, but I know there's some really smart people out here and, and that, you know, saying that we can only do this in person, that's a limiting belief. And I think that through use of technology as they emerge or as we get creative with how they're applied, that we can absolutely teach people how to do that stuff. I completely agree. I don't I don't believe that it's necessary to uh, to be sitting in front of whatever whatever your industry is, you know, uh, half a million dollars worth of equipment as a student to be able to get a job on the other side of it. Because in the end, we all know that when you go into various tech entertainment fields that you're going to start at the bottom and you're going to take that foundation knowledge that you had and use that to relearn everything into the way that it functions in your facility or your company or whatever it is with the equipment that they're using and go from there. So I agree with you. I was just curious to, you know, your opinion on these things that are so, you know, heavily revolving around touch this. And when you touch that, these things happen. Mm. So, I mean, those are like the one percenters, right? The, the people who, <laughs> who even get to have access to that stuff in the first exactly. place. So when you're talking about, you know, these people or those students, it's really such a small amount of people that even have access to take those courses in the first place. So it's interesting. It's like, you know, but that's where the majority of the resources go in in buying yeah. and procuring and managing the, this technology. I mean, it's it's an interesting sort of system that we've backed ourselves into that we now have to figure out how it's going to function in this new reality. Yeah. Well, it's even a smaller, there's a small circle of people that have access to the equipment. It's even a smaller circle of people that are going to leave that institution and enter into the workforce and be in a place that is going to involve that stuff. It just it becomes a smaller and smaller circle. It does. Um, it does. Seems know. a little backwards, doesn't it? At times, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it does. It does. Um, you seem to form the way that you uh, communicate and educate based on uh, a really strong understanding of people. Do you feel like you really like understand where a person's coming from? Is that something that you've always had? Or did you work towards kind of being able to look at someone's situation, understand where they're coming from, be empathetic to that, to teach teach to them the way they need to be teached, taught. <laughs> Tauted. <laughs> um, you, you know how I need to be taught now, apparently. <laughs> um, I, I think partly it's innate. Um, and then the other half, I definitely had to learn. You know, I think... <sighs> 
I'm, I just am, I'm a, I'd call myself a considerate person and sometimes overly considerate. You know, I remember being in labor and like worrying that my mom and my husband were uncomfortable because <laughs> it was taking so long for me to deliver my baby, you know? So I think, I think there's some, there's something to that where I just, um, I'm worried about other people and how they feel and wanting people to be comfortable and to feel, you know, good. So, you know, that's just my personality on one hand, but on the other hand, being in the music industry for, for however long, um, just a few years because I'm only 27. <laughs> um, I, uh, you, you just have to understand that the only way the business gets done is if you understand what the other person wants or needs in that situation, right? Like this person needs this and I need this. Like, do they go together? Will this work? And, you know, I think as an artist, you kind of, you push, and you, I, I reared my head against that for a long time. I was like, you want this because I'm incredible and my music is so powerful. And then eventually it like that whole idea of the friction in my career and having to adjust say, okay, I understand this is what somebody else wants from me. And if I want to live a, a frictionless life, then I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to change that. So I think, you know, the way that I just am as a person combined with, you know, 14, 15 years of some pretty brutal experiences in the music industry have led me to understand that uh, a keen awareness of what another person needs and wants is a lot of times the thing that unlocks whatever it is that you need or want. That is very well said. That's great. I'm writing that down. I'm saving that one for myself. Last, uh, last kind of thing I wanted to touch on as we, as we work our way to the close, you, uh, you said that a tough moment for you was when you realized that people were more interested in the way that you made music versus the music that you were making. And that was a tough like mindset change for you. Are there things that you try to encourage in your students or things that you see in your students that you wish they didn't have that are these mind, like the scarcity mindset of I have to do every job I can get my hands on or um, are there any of those things that you wish people didn't have that you could just be like, hey, just shake, shake it out of someone and just be like, you don't, don't to think like that ever. It won't get you anywhere. Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, I think the biggest one, and I, I talked about this in that NPR interview as well, is personal narrative, you know, where mm. you decide that, you know, this is how life is going to happen. Or, I mean, it was, a, it was especially um, potent with me as a young person, because I went to a place like Berkeley. And it's, you know, I think when you when you have that experience and you conclude with that experience, there's this expectation that something will, you know, result from that, those years of education or, you know, all the money that you spent, whatever it is, whatever got you to that point. And you're saying, okay, well, I did this. And so this must occur. Um, or, you know, I want to be a rock star or I am going to move to LA. Like I, I remember having students and this, you know, people would say, we're like, oh, what are you going to do after uh, after school? And I had a young woman tell me, oh, I'm thinking about, you know, I think I'll just be bi-coastal. And like when I need to be writing in L.A., I'll live in L.A. And then when, you know, it makes sense for me to be writing in New York, I'll be in New York. And I just remember thinking, it was like, OK, all right, <laughs> you've got a totally, you know, warped perception of the way that things are going to happen to you once you leave. Right. Um, like it, it, it takes people years and years to even just have a, a working, uh, you know, 
a career as a writer, 10, 15 years sometimes. Oh, forever. Yeah. Forever. And then some just never. So, you know, and, and I was like, I, at that moment, I was like, nothing I say is going to like change the way that this person thinks. And I don't have it in me right now to try to disillusion this person. <laughs> um, but that, that idea of personal narrative, it can be so strong, especially with young musicians uh, that it prevents them from doing a lot because, you know, things will present themselves and they'll say, oh, that doesn't fit my narrative. So I'm not going to do that. And I did that a lot. I did that so much, you know, even with technology. It was like, I remember somebody suggested that I play a digital piano because I was a piano performer at Berkeley. And I was like, ew, electric keyboards are gr like, I would, That's I would real. never, <laughs> I would never do that. Um, and then, you know, here I am, <laughs> like I, I played a, a real piano the other day. I was like, wow, this is so hard. My hands hurt. This isn't like a MIDI <laughs> controller at all. <laughs> so can I quantize this? Exactly. Yeah. I think there's a, there's like this perception. I mean, I'm sure it's like this in every, every career. I just, I see it in the music industry that there's a path, whether you're a player or producer or writer and you like, you go through these, the steps, you know, and I'm, and now I've graduated or I've moved. Let's skip whether you went to college or not. I've come to the place where I'm going to work and I'm going to get this entry-level job at this label or at this recording studio or uh, play guitar for so-and-so. Sometimes I, I feel like people, before they realize that the steps are not taking them there, they're too far. You know, to, to be like, you know what, this old path that I read about on a blog or that someone told me or a teacher or a friend or whatever it is said, this is the way to success people just need to be, they need to be broken of that mindset earlier because you can go too far and realize that you passed so many opportunities. If you would have just gone off the beaten path, you could have found something, which you've done. You've gone off of the path that you thought you were set out to. You had that moment. You realize that. Uh, I just don't think enough people come to that conclusion, unfortunately. And I think it, you know, lend itself to defeat or career change when that happens, which is unfortunate. I'm trying to prevent people from going through that experience, you know, and this is why the, like my whole program is about diversification and plan A is like five things because we all do that. You know, it's like you go to music school or, or not, and you end up doing like so many things just to survive. And that's the reality of it. Yeah. I spent like a solid, I don't know, five years trying to push back against that. And it was, it was expensive. It was painful. And, you know, I, I don't want to like point fingers at anybody, but, you know, I think it's our job as educators to help people to understand the way the world works. And, you know, that was not afforded to me in my education. Or maybe I was just so naive and dense that somebody was saying it, I never heard it. I, I don't know. But I definitely had a, a strange idea in my mind about what my life was going to look like. Well, you know, something, you're definitely going to have an opinion about this one. Something that I always thought the best way to teach someone a skill set may not be the best way for them to utilize it or function in the real world, true or false. The best way to teach them something is not the best, the way that they're going to be using it. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it really depends on, on you know, on the skill set. But Like for composition, I think 
Yeah. Like so, some things are just really difficult to manufacture in a classroom, you know, like and it's, it's, I think engineering as well. It's like, okay, well, who, you know, it's, it's all fun and games until you're actually in a, in a situation where it's like money's on the line and people are mad and like, you just have to, you have to like, then you pull into the deep recesses of your mind and you're like, oh shit, I got to take that information somebody gave me and you to use it. Um, this is yeah. not how I thought I would be using it. So I think like, you know, stuff like that is, that's just the way of the world. Or when you're writing songs with other people, it's, it's like the, the actual details of it, you can deliver in a classroom, but it's super hard to manufacture those, you know, situations outside of, you know, real world, uh, real world, real world application. So I think, I guess, I guess, yes, I agree in, in some degree. Yes. I changed my answer from maybe to yes. <laughs> I, I, I agree. I, I lean the same way. I lean towards, you know, the best way to reach a mass audience with a piece of information might not be the best way to explain to them how to, how to use it. But you wish that you wish that it could be both because then you wouldn't have these confused paths that people might come out and start their journey with uh, because they've experienced something that's more real, but they might not learn it. If you give them the real dose, it might not make sense to 50%. And you do have to give everybody a shot. They're there to learn it. That's true. So you've had, uh, you've had a ton of great, uh, great tips for everybody. Do you have any last thoughts about, um, you know, people hitting the workforce and any ideas about that? Um, There was one thing that I thought might be interesting so I, in the past, like, I guess eight years, in the past eight years, I've been offered five or six jobs completely out of the blue that I never took. Right. And I've, I've been kind of thinking about this, like, why does this keep happening to me? Why, why do people want to hire me and give me jobs when I am not asking for jobs? And, you know, it's like a great problem to have, but yeah, I had a conversation with this GM person that was trying to hire me about like, what, what, what why? Because this person tried to hire me two times. I turned the job down twice in like, you know, three years later, the second offer came through. And he was saying to me that people who have both a creative and a technical skill set, like that, that in and, of, in and of itself is kind of a rarity if people can really embrace both sides of that. So you know, I, I just want to encourage people to to think more broadly about that. When you pair both of those things together with like that ability to communicate well with people and that organizational, like if you can if you can be organized, communicate well with other people, and have a creative and technical skill set, you are I think unstoppable in this industry. Like people need you, people want you, and there are so many jobs out there that require that sort of breadth and depth. You know, people are trying to hire people to do like a million things like, okay, well, we need somebody who can run the studio, but they also have to like be good at social media and marketing and, you know, like play the guitar, whatever, whatever it is. Right. You know, like jobs are so broad these days. And, you know, I think that if you if you can kind of think of it that way, like these four buckets, communication skills technical skills, creative skills, and that organizational, um, you know, final dot to connect them all that you are, you're ultimately unstoppable in this industry. And so, you know, that's, it's like, (laughs) you know, every job that you have to do to be really good at, they say like the 10,000 hours, right? It's like, you need to put in the 40,000 hours to be good at all four of those types of things. But 
I really think that it's like the recipe for success in the music industry today. I just wanted to make sure that like I said that out loud for people because I think that it's, I think it's important. I agree completely. And I think the more, the more things that you're able to learn and the more time you learn, the more time you spend learning things, the easier all those things come. So you'll find that like adding new skill sets to your bag is super challenging at first, but you're just stretching more muscles and like teaching yourself something and conquering something is just in one more muscle you can work out. So that's another amazing bit of insight. This is just killer piece after killer piece here with Aaron Barra. We'll just change the title <laughs> of the podcast to that. All right. I'm that's, just... that's getting cut out for sure. Okay. <laughs> um, so uh, before we close, I like to put people on the spot a little bit and ask them one question to, to close out on. Um, and that question is, what is your biggest goal right now? And what is the next smallest thing you're going to do to execute that? Ooh. Um, what I'm working on right now is working less, like moving a bit slower through my, the world, if you will. Um, and what am I doing? I'm, I'm trying to... <laughs> I, uh, I'm holding up a piece of paper right now. <laughs> this is like my to do, my to do. And it's, it's, it's really, um, structured. I'm just trying to create more structure so that I'm limiting the amount of stuff that I'm doing. So it's like the opposite of a traditional to-do list where usually you're like, here's everything I have to do. Mine are like, these are the only things I'm allowed to do today. Um, so it's the anti to-do list is my, are my, my small steps. Um, and really like the, the end result is just becoming okay with that because I have a lot of anxiety around, um, working, you know, I think this is something that we all kind of struggle with, especially people of my generation where it's like, you know, I, I'm addicted to work and that's something I could say kind of without hesitation, and without apology, because I've been enabled to do that because of the way our culture is set up and just what's been expected of me as an individual in my field. Like I've gotten to where I am because I've worked so freaking hard and um, I need to stop doing that because it's really bad for you to do. You shouldn't live like that. <laughs> we shouldn't should be living. Not. You should not. No. And so I'm I'm relearning how to uh, take a chill pill is what I'm doing. <laughs> No, that's great. I think mean, it's super powerful. I've been doing like the same thing, you know, for the last couple of years. I, I got married recently. I know you have one one child, right? Yep. I think when those you hit those moments where you're like, oh, I I get fulfillment out of not working 18 hours a day. There are these other things where you're like, these things are amazing. And so then you have to you have to take a moment to figure out how am I gonna stop this addiction? Because I'm the same way. I if you gave me something to do, I would do it for 18 hours and then remember to eat lunch after that. So there's a, I'm going to, I'm going to ruin it, but there's a, uh, philosophy 1990. Let's just, this might be, this might be a candidate for getting edited out, but it's like the first 90 minutes of your day dedicate to like you have the most important tasks on your list. And I think that's what a lot of people don't do is they'll make a list of whatever the, the 30 things they need to do to, uh, finish their record and get it out and they'll do the thing that feels like what they feel like doing and they won't do the next thing that will actually make that record come out totally you know like googling blogs that you're going to send it to is not going to release your record 
getting up and writing the lyrics to the bridge is. So why don't you get up and write the lyrics to the bridge, and then when you're tired, you can Google blogs to send it to. But I, I don't know. You should make sure you, to uh, push that one down on your students as well because prioritization is key. So My dad always says, the thing you want to do the least, do it first. Um, yes. And I'm like, a, um, I subscribe to that big time. Um, almost to my own detriment. Be like, ooh, that sounds horrible. Let's hurry up and do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it works. Is it, do you find that that is generally the most important thing that you should do and that you're kind of avoiding it? Probably. Yeah, there's like some, you know, something in there. Well, I just, the other part of it is that if I know there's something coming that I don't want to do, it removes all enjoyment of other tasks. <laughs> you know, if I, if I put it off until later, I'll be doing, and I'll be doing something I want and then it'll just loom in the background like, oh, and then you, you've got to pitch correct 45 tracks and that's <laughs> going to suck. So, you know, I just, I just do it and I don't, I don't even think about it anymore. And it really makes me enjoy the stuff I want to do even more. And, you know, things get done quicker that way, oddly enough. Yeah, it clears space for creativity. Like if you get that nonsense that's wearing you down out of your mind early and then you go sit down at the piano, you're probably more likely to knock something out that feels really amazing. So, um, so is there anything you want to share with uh with our listeners where they can find you whether it's course stuff or instagram or anything uh yeah i mean i'm i'm on all the all the webs <laughs> all over the webs uh it's you know i'm on instagram i'm on facebook you know, if you're interested in learning music stuff music technology in particular you can go check out all the berkeley online courses I wrote five, and there's a sixth coming out um, early next year. And Coursera, obviously, is a great place to kind of get an intro to what it is that I'm doing. But um, I just want to wish all of your listeners good luck. You know, I think if you've come to this podcast, you're you're thinking deep thoughts, and you're you're trying to figure out how to make it work for yourself. So keep on keep on doing whatever it is, and uh, good luck. Amazing. Well, Aaron, thank you so much. This was great. I actually, I really enjoyed this. This was highlight of my day. Likewise. Thank so, you for having me. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. Thank you so much. So that does it for uh, episode number seven. Hope you all enjoyed it. Uh, you know what I'm going to say here. Like, subscribe, share if you're enjoying the show and jump over to completeproducer.net. We got a good conversation going on over there and I'll see you next week.